So these are further instructions from Paul. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature, and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it would be really helpful if you've got your Bibles there to uh, open them to Colossians 4. 2 to 18. Uh, if your Bible's on your phone, I, I, I will know that you're not looking at Facebook and that that's what you're doing. Um, yeah, a moment to find that. So this is the last in our series based on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I think it's fair to say that Paul has given us a letter, uh, sorry, a lesson in applied Christianity. Uh, it's all very well to hear and receive the gospel, but then we've got to live it. What does the Christian life actually look like? Uh, when I was a curate in London, a curate is uh, someone who's been ordained, but they uh, work under the guidance of a more experienced uh, clergy person, a bit like an apprenticeship. So I was uh, a curate. And uh, in the early days, my supervisor would get me to uh, run through my sermons before I preached them to the congregation. And I think this may have even been the first time that I ever did this. I got to the end of my sermon, just my supervisor uh, there listening. I got to the end of it and he said, so what? And uh, 
It, it was quite effective. I always remember that. And uh, what he was getting at was, okay, you've given me all this information, but what am I to do with it? How does this apply to my life? Uh, well, no one could get to the end of Paul's letters, uh, letter to the Colossians and say, so what? Uh, Paul began this letter by reminding the Colossians who they are in Christ. They are God's holy people. They've been transferred from darkness to light. They are citizens of Jesus's eternal kingdom, redeemed and forgiven. They were once God's enemies. Now they've been reconciled to God. Their old sinful nature died with Christ and they rose with Christ to new life. Indeed, they are new creations. And I suppose someone who is very cynical could get to the end of all that and say, so what? Uh, But Paul goes on to describe what this means for the individual believer in terms of how they live their lives. We looked at this last week, what it means to be clothed in Jesus's likeness. Now, as Christians, we are followers of Jesus. We're worshippers of Jesus, and we want to increasingly become like Jesus. Jesus is our king, our friend, our role model, our savior, and our God. But when we give our allegiance to Jesus, we also take on his mission, We have a role to play in the purposes of God. And this is what Paul turns to in the last part of this letter. Ultimately, our mission as Christians is to proclaim the gospel, to tell people the good news of Jesus, that they might too repent, receive his forgiveness, and be part of the new creation. God intends to renew and restore the whole of creation, and he wants as many people as possible to be part of that. He longs to see human beings returning to him so they can eventually be part of a world that's been made perfect. Remarkably, he has given us and the worldwide church the wonderful mission of proclaiming this good news to as many people as possible. What an amazing mission to be part of. I mean, we we hear of companies that have exciting mission statements, don't we? Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Microsoft's mission is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. SpaceX's mission is to revolutionize space technology with the ultimate goal of enabling people to live on other planets. They're exciting missions, aren't they? I mean, if you're an aerospace engineer, and there is at least one in our church, and you've got a call from Elon Musk, and and he says, I'd like you to come and work for SpaceX, you'd be like, wow, uh, I get to be part of this incredible mission. What an amazing privilege. Hard to uh, uh, imagine that, but uh, I'm not even sure how you would summarize God's uh, mission in a single statement. Perhaps something like, to bring sinful human beings back into a relationship with God so they can live forever with God in a world that's been made perfect. To bring sinful human beings back into a right relationship with God so they can live forever with God in a world that's been made perfect. It's hard to imagine a more exciting mission statement than that. And God has called us to be part of it. 
So here in chapter 4, Paul begins to talk about the mission of the church. And there are three aspects to this. He talks about prayer, proclamation, and partnership. Prayer, proclamation, and partnership. Firstly, prayer. Paul begins by saying, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. How often do we pray for something, but we hardly seem to notice when God answers our prayer? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I went on a bushwalk with uh, Matt and Adrian. And uh, uh, before we set out, Adrian said, let's pray. Uh, Great idea. We gathered around. We we prayed. And one of the things we prayed for was um, safety. Now, it wasn't a particularly... Uh, perilous route, but things can happen. In fact, at one point near the top of a waterfall, I slipped and Matt had to, to grab hold of me. Uh, if you talk to Matt about that, he'll gladly tell you that he saved my life. I don't think it was quite that dramatic, uh, but it could have resulted uh, in injury. And uh, who knows, if we hadn't prayed, it may have resulted in injury because I believe that prayer does change things. It's only when I was writing this sermon that I realized that we didn't pray at the end of the walk. So we prayed for protection, but when we got round without mishap, we didn't give thanks to God. So we're going to devote ourselves to prayer. We need to be watchful. And when I say watchful, I mean we pray, and then we watch to see what God does. God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we might hope or expect, but God does answer our prayers. You know, if we had a list of every prayer that we'd ever prayed, most of which we, we've probably forgotten about, alongside, and alongside each prayer was a, a summary of how things worked out. Yes, there would be a few question marks. Why didn't God work that out the way I'd hoped? Why did God allow that to happen? Why did God do it that way? Uh, for sure, there'd be some of those, because we can't see what God sees, and we can't know what God knows. But overall, I think we'd be overwhelmed by how effective our prayers have been. So we pray and we watch to see what God is doing in the world and what he's doing in our lives. And we give thanks because in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Next, Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him. Now, if one of us went on a mission trip to another country and we got imprisoned there, for proclaiming the gospel, and we wrote to the rest of the church back here at St. Andrews, and we said, uh, please pray for me. I wonder what would follow. Please pray for the kids who are involved. Please pray for me and pray that there's some piranhas, uh, or a nuclear bomb, or whatever else. But in reality, what we'd probably be saying, please pray for me. Pray that I get out of this hellhole of a prison. And I don't think that would be a bad prayer request. But it's not what Paul asked the Colossians to pray for. Here's what he said. He said, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in change. So Paul doesn't ask them to pray that the door of his prison cell will be miraculously opened and he's escorted out by an angel, which actually happens to Peter in uh, Acts 21. And also Paul and Silas are uh, released from their prison cells in, uh, in Acts 16 as well. But Paul doesn't ask them to pray for any of those sorts of things. Not the literal door of his prison cell opening. He asks for a door to be opened that will enable the gospel to be proclaimed to those who desperately need to hear it, which is everyone, by the way. 
Again, he urges them to pray that he'll be able to proclaim the gospel clearly. Paul is completely focused on God's mission. And he's not allowing something as trivial as being in prison to get in the way of that. But the overarching point here is that mission must be undergirded by prayer. The word mission is widely used, but it's uh, definitely uh, a word that we associate with the military. Well, the New Testament makes it clear that when we engage in God's mission, we engage in spiritual warfare. As it says in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If we engage in God's mission, if we go on the offensive, we will face opposition. We need to be prepared for that. You can't go on the offensive without putting in the groundwork. And you take the example of a physical war, like the one that's being fought in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, the Ukrainians have uh, recently gone on their long-awaited counter-offensive. And it's long-awaited because there's an enormous amount of groundwork that had to be put in before it could start. Uh, the gathering of information from small reconnaissance teams, satellite imagery, drone footage, POWs, and so on. The recruitment of soldiers, the procurement of equipment, then training the soldiers to use the equipment, everything from small arms right up to uh, being able to coordinate infantry, artillery, armor, which is tanks, air assets, being able to use all that together. The soldiers have been training and rehearsing, going over their drills Again and again, it takes an enormous amount of effort and discipline. Then there's an the information war that's being fought, trying to undermine the, uh, the Russians' will to fight and undermine the political structure within uh, Russia. And of course, the targeting of key military infrastructure inside uh, Russian-occupied areas and within Russia itself. Commanders at all levels will have been planning and strategizing and poring over maps and uh, information. It just goes on and on and on. From a military perspective, you, you can't just go on the offensive. There's a huge amount of groundwork that has to be done first. We know that. We understand it. At the moment, we see it every day in the news. Yet when it comes to going on the offensive in the spiritual sense... A lot of the time, Christians seem to think they can go wading in without any preparation or groundwork. Well, if we're serious about proclaiming the good news of Jesus, we have to do the groundwork, and the groundwork is prayer. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit because in a spiritual sense, prayer is going on the offensive. But overall, the point is that if we're going to take the gospel out into the world, we need to undergird that with prayer. The next thing Paul talks about is the proclamation itself. He says, he begins by saying, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. When Paul talks about outsiders, he means those who don't yet know and love Jesus. In the Roman Empire in the first century, that was a lot of people who didn't know and love Jesus. In 21st century Australia, that is a lot of people. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about winning people for Christ. I think that's a good way of looking at it. We're trying to win people over for Jesus. And we have to be wise about how we do that, because very often the most off-putting thing about Christianity is Christians. We won't win people over by judging them or by pretending that we're the perfect example of a Christian. We won't win people over by browbeating them or nagging them or screaming at them through a loud hailer. The way we win people for Christ is through our example and through our words. Now, what's interesting is that expressing our faith verbally is the last thing that Paul talks about in this letter. Because if we're going to reach out to people with the gospel, there needs to be some evidence that it's having a positive effect in our own lives. That's why Paul gives us this lesson in applied Christianity, explains how we're to live as Christians, and then he talks about evangelism, taking the message of the gospel out to others. Our example is important. Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. So it's not just our words. that Those words have to be backed up by the way that we act, the way that we live. So, for example, if I go to work uh, and I'm kind of lazy and I don't work for the team and I'm bad-tempered, I'm always complaining and, and gossiping, then who on earth is going to take me seriously if I begin to talk about my faith? Conversely, if you go to work and you're selfless and hardworking and you always try to make other people's lives a bit easier and you're respectful and patient and you don't blame other people when things go wrong, then your colleagues will probably respect you enough to take what you say seriously. And in all likelihood, you'll be given more opportunity to share your faith. And, uh, and uh, Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. More people than ever are ticking no religion when they're asked to fill in the census. Yet Google searches related to religion and spirituality are on the rise. And this was particularly true during the COVID pandemic. The National Library of Medicine reported that during the early months of the pandemic, Google searches for prayer relative to all Google searches rose by 30%, reaching the highest level ever recorded. The opportunities are there. People are still asking the big questions. Just last week, I was in... Um, UniSQ, and I, I was in there. They got like a common room area there, and I was introducing myself to people, saying, "Hi, I'm the I'm the new chaplain." And uh, there was one guy in particular. He just sat down to uh, eat his lunch, and I went over. I said hello, and we had a polite conversation. He was a bit standoffish, but he was polite. And eventually, I said, "Do you mind if I take a seat?" He said, "Yeah, go ahead." Uh, it turned out he's from Iran, and I said, "Are you practicing Muslim?" He said, "No." I said, "Do you believe in God?" He said, sometimes. And then we had this amazing conversation about the Christian faith. He had a lot of good questions, intelligent questions, big questions. I think the last question he asked me was, what exactly is heaven and hell? That conversation reawakened me to the reality that people are still asking the big questions. People out there are hungry and thirsty for the truth and for some sense of what the spiritual reality of this world is. 
It's actually a very exciting opportunity when you think about it. Paul continues, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul is assuming that we will have conversations about our faith. He just takes that as a given. But he says, be always full of grace. In other words, if someone reacts negatively to what you're saying, don't rise to it. Don't double down. Don't get into a a heated argument. If necessary, back off. And then he says, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. It's not entirely clear what he means by that. uh, But I think he probably means that the conversation should be lively, good-humored, good-natured, engaging. Now, some people will probably be thinking, I just don't know if I can have those kind of conversations. And there are probably three main reasons you might be thinking that. The the first is it could be that you're a bit of an introvert. If you're the kind of person who goes to the barber or the hairdresser and you sit down in the chair and you're thinking, I hope they don't talk to me too much, uh, then it could be that you're more at the introvert end of the spectrum. Believe it or not, I, I myself am a, I'm an introvert, so I feel like that uh, quite often. Secondly, it could be that you're just a bit embarrassed or worried about how people uh, will perceive you, how they might, what they might think of you. I remember talking to the uh, youth at uh, the church I was at in Tottenham, and they were all very image-conscious. Uh, I remember saying to them, you know, As soon as you stop worrying what people think about you, God will really be able to use you. But that 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 worry of what other people think can can absolutely cripple us and cripple our uh, our our witness. Thirdly, you might think, I just don't know enough. I don't know my Bible well enough. I don't know how I'd have this kind of conversation, how I'd talk about my faith. Well, whatever the reason for us feeling apprehensive about sharing our faith, it comes back to where we started, the groundwork, the prayer. The first thing is to pray for the desire to share our faith. Because if we don't really want to do it, we're going to find every excuse not to do it. We need to ask God and the Holy Spirit to give us that deep desire and that sense of urgency to get out there and tell people the good news of Jesus. And then we watch Remember, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. We watch for the opportunity. And when that opportunity comes, we trust God to give us the right words to say. And the words probably won't be an exposition on Paul's letter to the Colossians. More likely something like, yeah, I go to, Christ- uh, I go to church most weeks. Would you like to come along? Or when I was going through a really tough time in my life, I found that when I prayed, I got a real sense of peace. It can be very simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. We just have to make the most of the opportunities that God gives us every day. God gives us so many opportunities just to sow a little seed into someone's life, to speak some small truth, to to, to just say some small thing that points to God. So many opportunities. Finally, and very briefly, Paul talks about partnership. Uh, The last part of this letter, the the final greeting, uh, it points to a network of Christians who are all engaged in the same mission. Uh, Tychicus and Onesimus, Onesimus was the escaped slave that we um, talked about last week, they delivered 
this letter. Aristarchus is in prison with Paul. Uh, Mark, Barnabas, and Justus are supporting them whilst they're in prison. Epaphras, Luke, and Demas send their greetings. Then you have the Colossians themselves. Then you have the Laodiceans who will receive this letter once the Colossians have read it. And you had Nympha who's opening her home to a, to a church uh, and, and a whole load of others. Actually, it's a bit like a who's who of the Christian, uh, the Christian world in the first century. But um, the point is we're, we're not meant to do this on our own. We see all these other characters, all these different roles that they're playing in the ministry. One of the key partnerships that we've formed as a church is with uh, Sandra and the Creating a Bright Future Foundation in Indonesia. And you probably uh, heard Sandra say how much she values having a church praying for her and supporting her. For a long time, she tried to do it on her own, and it was exhausting. And of course, we benefit hugely from seeing God working in such a powerful way in a very different context to our own. We must have partners in the gospel as a church, uh, but also as individuals. And so the final question for us today is, who are you partnering with? Who are you partnering with? Are you in a hub? Are you in a small group or a team? Who do you pray with? If we're not praying regularly with someone, we are missing a vital component of what is needed for us to engage in this amazing mission that God has called us to. We need to partner with other people. We need to pray into this uh, as a church and in, in smaller groups. So Paul ends his letter to the Colossians with a call to action, prayer, proclamation, and partnership. Let's go on the offensive. Let's start taking some ground and making the most of the kingdom-building opportunities that God sends us every single day of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you call us to this amazing mission. There is no mission statement in the world that is so exciting as uh, that that we might give for the gospel. And Father, we recognize that we we get distracted and we get our priorities wrong and we fail to speak when we should speak and we feel apprehensive and nervous sometimes we pray lord that you'll give us firstly the desire and then the uh, the courage to proclaim the gospel in all kinds of different ways in all our different settings We pray, Father, that we'll begin to be more aware of all the opportunities that we have every day to, in some small way, point to you and your kingdom. And we pray that our whole lives will be about that, pointing to you and to your kingdom, that others uh, may receive this wonderful gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.